0: Chapter eight of the Midnight Queen This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Recording by Linda Ferguson The Midnight Queen by May Agnes Fleming Chapter eight The Midnight Queen When Sir Norman Kingsley entered the ancient ruin, his head was full of Leoline. When he knelt down to look through the aperture in the flag floor, head and heart were full of her still. But the moment his eyes fell on the scene beneath, everything fled far from his thoughts, Leoline among the rest, and nothing remained but a profound and absorbing feeling of intense amaze. Right below him he beheld an immense room, of which the flag he had raised seemed to form part of the ceiling, in a remote corner. Evidently, it was one of a range of lower vaults, and as he was at least fourteen feet above it, and his corner somewhat in shadow, there was little danger of his being seen. So, leaning far down to look at his leisure, he took the goods the gods provided him, and stared to his heart's content. Sir Norman had seen some queer sights during the four-and-twenty years he had spent in this queer world, but never anything quite equal to this. The apartment below, though so exceedingly large, was lighted with the brilliance of noonday, and every object it contained, from one end to the other, was distinctly revealed. The floor, from glimpses he had of it in obscure corners, was of stone, but from end to end it was covered with richest rugs and mats, and squares of velvet, of as many colours as Joseph's coat. The walls were hung with splendid tapestry gorgeous in silk and colouring, representing the wars of Troy, the exploits of Cordelion among the Saracens, the death of Hercules, all on one side, and on the other a more modern representation, the field of the cloth of gold. The illumination proceeded from a range of wax tapers in silver candelabra that encircled the whole room. The air was redolent of perfumes, and filled with strains of softest and sweetest music from unseen hands at one extremity of the room was a huge door of glass and gilding and opposite it at the other extremity was a glittering throne it stood on a raised dais covered with crimson velvet reached by two or three steps carpeted with the same the throne was as magnificent as gold and satin and ornamentation could make it a great velvet canopy of the same deep, rich colour, cut in antique points and heavily hung with gold fringe, was above the seat of honour. Beside it, to the right, but a little lower down, was a similar throne, somewhat less superb, and minus a canopy. From the door to the throne was a long strip of crimson velvet, edged and embroidered with gold, and arranged in a sweeping semicircle on either side, were a row of great carved, gilded, and cushioned chairs, brilliant, too, with crimson and gold, and each for everyday Christians a throne in itself. Between the blaze of illumination, the flashing of gilding and gold, the tropical flash of crimson velvet, the rainbow dyes on floors and walls, the intoxicating gushes of perfume, and the delicious strains of unseen music, "'It is no wonder Sir Norman Kingsley's head "'was spinning like a bewildered teeterdom. "'Was he sane? "'Was he sleeping? "'Had he drank too much wine at the Golden Crown "'and had it all gone to his head? "'Was it a scene of earnest enchantment, "'or were fairy tales true? "'Like Abu Hassan, when he awoke in the palace "'of the facetious Caliph of Baghdad, "'he had no notion of believing his own eyes and ears, "'and quietly concluded It was all an optical illusion, as ghosts are said to be, but he quietly resolved to stay there, nevertheless, and see how the dazzling phantasmagoria would end. The music was certainly ravishing, and it seemed to him as he listened with enchanted ears that he never wanted to wake up from so heavenly a dream. One thing struck him as rather odd. Strange and bewildered as everything was, it did not seem at all strange to him. On the contrary, a vague idea was floating mistily through his mind that he had beheld precisely the same thing somewhere before. Probably at some past period of his life he had beheld a similar vision, or had seen a picture somewhere like it in a tale of magic, and satisfying himself with this conclusion, he began wondering if the genii of the place were going to make their appearance at all, or if the knowledge that human eyes were upon them had scared them back to Erebus. While still ruminating on this important question, a portion of the tapestry, almost beneath him, shriveled up and up, and out flocked a glittering throng, with a musical mingling of laughter and voices. Still they came, more and more, until the great room was almost filled, and a dazzling throng they were. Sir Norman had mingled in many a brilliant scene at Whitehall, where the gorgeous court of Charles shone in all its splendour, with the merry monarch at their head, but all he had ever witnessed at the King's court fell far short of this pageant. Half the brilliant flock were ladies, superb in satins, silks, velvets, and jewels. And such jewels! Every gem that ever flashed back the sunlight sparkled and blazed in blending array on those beautiful bosoms and arms—diamonds, pearls, opals emeralds rubies garnets sapphires amethysts every jewel that ever shone but neither dresses nor gems were half so superb as the peerless forms they adorned and such an army of perfectly beautiful faces from purest blondes to brightest brunettes had never met and mingled together before each lovely face was unmasked but Sir Norman's dazzled eyes in vain sought among them for one he knew. All that rosebud garden of girls were perfect strangers to him, but not so the gallants, who fluttered among them like moths around meteors. They too were in gorgeous array, in purple and fine linen, which being interpreted signifieth in silken hose of every color under the sun spangled and embroidered slippers radiant with diamond buckles doublets of as many different shades as their tights slashed with satin and embroidered with gold most of them wore huge powdered wigs according to the hideous fashion then in vogue and under those same ugly scalps laughed many a handsome face sir norman well knew the majority of those richly robed gallants were strangers to him as well as the ladies but whoever they were whether mortal men or spirits from the vasty deep, they were in the tallest sort of clover just then. Evidently they knew it, too, and seemed to be on the best of terms with themselves and all the world, and laughed and flirted and flattered with as much perfection as so many ballroom Apollos of the present day. Still, no one ascended the golden and crimson throne, though many of the ladies and gentlemen fluttering about it were arrayed as royally as any common king or queen need wish to be they promenaded up and down arm in arm they seated themselves in the carved and gilded chairs they gathered in little groups to talk and laugh did everything in short but ascend the throne and the solitary spectator up above began to grow intensely curious to know who it was for their conversation he could plainly hear and to say that it amazed him would be to use a feeble expression altogether inadequate to his feelings not that it was the remarks they made that gave his system each a shook but the names by which they addressed each other one answered to the aspiring cognomen of the duke of northumberland another was the earl of leicester another the duke of devonshire another the earl of clarendon another the duke of buckingham and so on ad infinitum dukes and earls alternately like bricks and mortar in the wall of a house there were other dignitaries besides some that sir norman had a faint recollection of hearing were dead for some years cardinal wolsey sir thomas moore the earl of bothwell king henry darnley sir walter raleigh the duke of norfolk the earl of southampton the duke of york and no end of others with equally sonorous titles as for mere lords and baronets and such small deer there was nothing so plebeian present and they were evidently looked upon by the distinguished assembly like small deer in thunder with pity and contempt the ladies too were all duchesses marchionesses countesses and looked fit for princesses sir norman thought though he heard none of them styled quite so high as that the tone of conversation was light and easy but at the same time extremely ceremonious and courtly, and all seemed to be enjoying themselves in the most delightful sort of way, which people of such distinguished rank, I am told, seldom do. All went merry as a marriage bell, and sweetly over the gay jingle of voices rose the sweet, faint strains of the unseen music. Suddenly all was changed. The great door of glass and gilding opposite the throne was flung wide, and a grand usher in a grand court livery flourished a mighty grand wand and shouted in a stentorian voice, Back, back, ye lieges, and make way for Her Majesty Queen Miranda. Instantly the unseen band thundered forth the national anthem. The splendid throng fell back on either side in profoundest silence and expectation. The grand usher mysteriously disappeared, and in his place there stalked forward a score of soldiers with clanking swords and fierce mustaches, in the gorgeous uniform of the king's bodyguard. These showy warriors arranged themselves silently on either side of the crimson throne, and were followed by half a dozen dazzling personages, the foremost crowned with mitre, armed with crozier, and robed in the ecclesiastical glory of an archbishop. But the face underneath, to the deep surprise and scandal of Sir Norman, was that of the fastest young rogue of Charles' court." After him came another pompous dignitary, in such unheard-of magnificence that the unseen looker-on set him down for a Prime Minister, or a Lord High Chancellor at the very least. The somewhat gaudy-looking gentleman who stepped after the pious prelate and peer wore the stars and garters of foreign courts, and were evidently ambassadors extraordinary to that of Her Midnight Majesty. After them came a snowy flock of fair young girls, angels all but the wings, slender as sylphs and robed in purest white. Each bore on her arm a basket of flowers, roses and rosebuds of every tint, from snowy white to darkest crimson, and as they floated in they scattered them lightly as they went. And then after all came another vision, the last, the brightest, the best, the Midnight Queen herself. One other figure followed her, and as they entered a shout arose from the whole assemblage long live queen miranda and bowing gracefully and easily to the right and left the queen with a queenly step trod the long crimson carpet and mounted the regal throne from the first moment of his looking down sir norman had been staring with all the eyes in his head undergoing one shock of surprise after another with the equanimity of a man quite new to it, but now a cry arose to his lips and died there in voiceless consternation, for he recognized the queen, well he might, he had seen her before, and her face was the face of Leoline. As she mounted the stairs, she stood there for a moment, crowned and sceptred, before sitting down, and in that moment he recognized the whole scene. That gorgeous room and its gorgeous inmates, that regal throne and its regal owner, all became palpable as the sun at noonday. That slender, exquisite figure, robed in royal purple and ermine, the uncovered neck and arms, snowy and perfect, ablaze with jewels, that lovely face, like snow, like marble in its whiteness and calm, with the great, dark, earnest eyes looking out and the waving wealth of hair falling around it it was the very scene and room and vision that La Masque had shown him in the cauldron and that face was the face of Leoline and the earl's page could he be dreaming was he sane or mad were the three really one while he looked the beautiful queen bowed low and amid the profoundest and most respectful silence took her seat in her robes of purple wearing the glittering crown sceptre in hand throned and canopied royally beautiful she looked indeed and a most vivid contrast to the gentleman near her seated very much at his ease on the lower throne the contrast was not of dress for his outward man was resplendent to look at but in figure and face or grace and dignity he was a very mean specimen of the lords of creation indeed in stature he scarcely reached the queen's royal shoulder but made up sideways what he wanted in length being the breadth of two common men his head was proportion to his width and was decorated with a wig of long flowing flaxen hair that scarcely harmonized with the profusion of the article whiskers in hue most unmitigated black his eyes were small keen bright and piercing and glared on the assembled company as they had done half an hour before on sir norman kingsley in the bar-room of the golden crown for the royal little man was no other than caliban the dwarf behind the thrones the flock of floral angels grouped themselves archbishop prime minister and ambassadors their stands within the lines of the soldiery, and the music softly and impressively died sway in the distance. Dead silence reigned. "'My Lord Duke,' began the Queen, in the very voice he had heard at the plague pit, as she turned to the stylish individual next the Archbishop, "'Come forward and read us the role of mortality since our last meeting.' His Grace the Duke instantly stepped forward bowing so low that nothing was seen of him for a brief space but the small of his back, and when he reared himself up after this convulsion of nature, Sir Norman beheld a face not entirely new to him. At first he could not imagine where he had seen it, but speedily he recollected it was the identical face of the highwayman who had beaten an inglorious retreat from him and Count Latrange that very night, This ducat robber drew forth a roll of parchment, and began reading in lachrymose tones a select litany of defunct gentlemen, with highfalutin titles, who had departed this life during the present week. Most of them had gone with the plague, but a few had died from natural causes, and among these were the earls of Craven and Ashley. "'My lord's Craven and Ashley dead!' exclaimed the Queen, in tones of some surprise, but very little anguish. That is singular for we saw them not two hours ago in excellent health and spirits, true, poor Majesty said the duke dolefully, and is not an hour since they quitted this vale of tears. They and myself rode forth at nightfall, according to custom, to lay your Majesty's tax on all travellers, and soon chanced to encounter one who gave vigorous battle. still, it would have done him little service. "'had not another person come suddenly to his aid? "'And between them they clove the skulls of Ashling Craven. "'And I,' said the Duke modestly, "'I left.' "'Were either of the travellers young and tall and of courtly bearing?' "'exclaimed the dwarf with sharp rudeness. "'Both were, your highness,' replied the Duke, "'bowing to the small speaker, "'and uncommonly handy with their weapons.' "'I saw one of them down at the golden crown not long ago.' said the dwarf a forward young popinjay and mighty inquisitive about this our royal palace i promised him if he came here a warm reception a promise i will have the greatest pleasure in fulfilling you may stand aside my lord duke said the queen with a graceful wave of her hand and if any new subjects have been added to our court since our last weekly meeting let them come forward and be sworn a dozen or more courtiers immediately stepped forward and kneeling before the queen announced their name and rank which were both ambitiously high a few silvery toned questions were put by that royal lady and satisfactorily answered and then the archbishop armed with a huge tome administered a severe and searching oath which the candidates took with a great deal of sans foie and were then permitted to kiss the hand of the queen a privilege worth any amount of swearing, and retire. "'Let one who has any reports to make, make them immediately,' again commanded Her Majesty. A number of gentlemen of high rank presented themselves at this summons, and began relating, as a certain sect of Christians do in church, their experience. Many of these consisted, to the deep disapproval of Sir Norman, of accounts of daring highway robberies—one of them perpetrated on the King himself, which distinguished personage the duplicate of Leoline, styled our brother Charles—and of the sums thereby attained. The Treasurer of State was then ordered to show himself, and give an account of the said monies, which he promptly did, and after him came a number of petitioners, praying for one thing and another, some of which the Queen promised to grant and some she didn't these little affairs of state being over miranda turned to the little gentleman beside her with the observation i believe your highness it is on this night the earl of gloucester is to be tried on a charge of high treason is it not his highness growled a respectful assent then let him be brought before us said the queen go guards and fetch him Two of the soldiers bowed low, and backed from the royal presence amid dead and ominous silence. At this interesting stage of the proceedings, as Sir Norman was leaning forward, breathless and excited, a footstep sounded on the flagged floor beside him, and someone suddenly grasped his shoulder with no gentle hand. End of the Midnight Queen Recording by Linda Ferguson